Hey Collaborist, I'm Ben Leroy. And I'm Jason Buckholtz. And you're listening to Collabracast. <laughs> How's it going, Kay? I'm doing fine. How about you? I'm doing I'm doing okay. And as far as the regular segment goes, how's the weather out that way? It's uh, sunny and breezy. It's pleasant. Quite pleasant. Whole different story than than that heat wave last week. How about you? Same. I would say right now it's somewhere in the mid 70s. It's sunny. We got a little rain over the weekend. So the peppers and the beans that I planted in my garden are happy. They got a little bit of a drink. And yeah, it's it's weird to me, and I don't know why this year more than any other year, but we just celebrated the longest day of the year. And I swear the next day I was already like, oh, it's getting dark so early now, even though I'm sure it's a minute, two minutes. I, I just was already in despair mode of like, mm-hmm. okay, here comes fall. And then after fall, there will be winter and winter. Didn't we just finish winter? And I'm I get kind of sad thinking about it. So I'm choosing to celebrate as much of this light as I possibly can. I think there is something, there is something about that shift though, about the days getting shorter. It's a turning, turning that corner and you're on, you're on that homeward stretch, you know, you're, you're, you're the direction you're going. in. I think it, it does feel different. I was getting my morning coffee a few days ago and I was walking back and some kids were rushing off to, I believe, swim team practice. There's a swimming pool down the street from me. And I realized that part of my own angst around the last few summers is that when we were kids, there was such a dividing line between the end of the school year, the potential and possibility of summer. And you knew this was before you had to get a summer job and go to summer school and all that stuff. But you just knew that, hey, it's going to be time to relax for a little bit. And there's going to be fun and running through the sprinkler and all of the things that you probably can't even do anymore for whatever reason. But I realized that adulthood's kind of a drag because you don't just have someone saying, hey, why don't you just take it easy for a couple of weeks here? Why don't you just, just go laze about, go read a book somewhere and just, just relax, calm down. Yeah, that, that annual school's out for summer feeling is not, that's, that's, that's for all those kids out here, out there listening to our novel writing advice. <laughs> <laughs> enjoy it enjoy it while it lasts kids yeah you want to write a novel as an 11 year old you're probably better suited for time purposes than any grown adult is so <laughs> just just be glad for what you got I used to just always kind of roll my eyes at the people who did the waste youth is wasted on all the wrong people because they're old and they're surly about getting old but now i'm firmly in the old and getting surly about getting older camp and youth is youth it's not that the youth is wasted it's just that we are aware of our own complicitness in our own waste of our youth or the our demand for a time machine that doesn't exist i don't even know what i would do like if you sent me back to being 10 I probably actually wouldn't like it all that much because you just don't really have any control over your environment or what you're doing. It's just, you go here, this is what you're eating. Right. I think that the first hankering you got for some ice cream and someone's like, no, you're not having ice cream right now. (laughs) Okay. never. All right. I'm getting back in the time machine. (laughs) Right. Yep. (laughs) Grass is always greener. Yeah. No, now we get to just fully embrace the grumbling, the grumbling old, old man role about the way things used to be. Yeah. Last week we started what is going to be, I don't know, 10, a dozen episodes of just kind of walking through all of the steps involved 
in writing a novel, all of the things to consider. And when I say all, obviously it can't be that all encompassing, but it should be a pretty good overview. Last week we talked about where do you get ideas? How do you get ideas? And we talked about that and we talked about what the goal for us was to have people submit some what if situations, just kind of get the idea train flowing. And I'm going to put those up on our website over at collaborist.org so you can see how other people responded to the challenge. And you and I are going to be doing our own that we'll have included there because we're going to walk through the process of all of these steps and kind of give our own examples to help illustrate it. What do we have on tap for today? Well, today we are talking about beginnings. How do you get those first ideas? How do you begin to get them on paper? How do you get that first sentence? How do you do that first paragraph? Where and how do you start? So we'll talk about a few examples. We'll talk about some, some do's and maybe a couple of don'ts. The problem with, I think, really leaning on the don'ts is that for every don't, there is some great book out there. There is some genius author who has figured out how to, how to, how to do that don't and do it well. Uh, just before we started recording here, we were talking about a don't that we found, which was not to start with description, uh, with the description of a landscape. And then we were talking about Steinbeck and the opening of East of Eden, which and, and the opening of Grapes of Wrath also is a description of landscape and processes. And, and I don't think anybody would really say that Steinbeck didn't didn't pull off a few things <laughs> if they didn't did say that i would disagree with them in the in the highest degree i for my money east of eden as i've grown into adulthood east of eden has become my favorite novel it's the novel that i return to most often and it is storytelling mastery and it is writing mastery for me for for my tastes and i i love it so yeah when when you come across advice online, on a website, on a podcast, this one included, it's important that you take it with a grain of salt. It's important that you understand that, like Jason said, whatever rule someone tries to put down, somebody else has probably broken it successfully. And they are good things to at least be aware of that people are skeptical about starting things a certain way and that you may run into some problems with readers and the broad part of it may not be true but hopefully whatever lesson the more specific lesson that goes with it does have some resonance and does does make sense yeah i would echo that um and i think that for every Think of these as general principles, as just things to be aware of, as as an analysis of certain pros and cons of of certain starting points. And um, like you said, for every every one that one person labels as problematic, somebody else has figured out how to do a beautiful job of opening a story with with that exact thing. Um, some of them are trickier than others. Some of them are, are more problematic than others, but um, we'll, yeah, we'll kind of run through some general, general ideas and, and go from there. And, you know, one of the things that I hear as far as advice goes, and that this is maybe a good time to reiterate that, is that with all of the rules that you hear about writing, it's important to understand the rules to understand why you do something or don't do something and then it's easier to break the rules because you understand why something was not advised and then once you have a full understanding of it and you understand potential alternative presentations 
you you can do wonderful and magic but understanding the rules before you break them is i think a, a, a good thing to tuck away in your breast pocket absolutely and i think we you know i think that's the beautiful thing about art is that there are really no hard and fast rules and that there are there are best practices. There are things that work better than others, or at least have historically. And then there will be people who figure out how to take those things and turn them inside out. I mean, if you look at the history of jazz, for example, um, as compared to you know classical musical theory, it's it's a whole genre that that turns those rules inside out and and uses things to really push the envelope and and create something new. You mentioned in our pre-show discussion that a lot of the don't advice that we saw was just really reductive. And that's, that's true. I also want to point out, and this is in some ways a confession. I have spent 20-ish years, a little more than 20 years, reading submissions and making attempts to get certain books acquired and published, either when I was running my own company or now in my role of acquiring for a publishing company. And there are times where I get mad at a submission because it's breaking rules that are conventional wisdom. And my initial response is to say, you can't do that. You can't have this many adverbs here. You, can, you just can't do that. Like the rules say, you just can't do that. And then I'll ask myself, but are you still enjoying reading this? And there are definitely been times where I'm like, yeah. And the adverbs didn't bother me. And it's a weird tug of war to be trained in the conventional wisdom, trained in the rules of what you can and can't do, and being unintentionally rigid in your going through and processing material that you're reading. And it has, in many ways, ruined my, well, let me not be too dramatic about it. It has compromised my ability to just enjoy reading, especially fiction that is published elsewhere because this inner reflexive critic that resides somewhere in the back of my brain, it, it shouts every time one of the rules has been broken or violated before I even have any consideration of does it still work? And that is something that as you are an author sending to an agent and sending to publishers, you may run into people whose reflexive automatic editor that is informed simply by the rules that we've all heard a million times that we may not have actually sat and given any real intellectual consideration to. You may run into problems because of that, which is another reason why it's important to understand what you're doing and proceed accordingly. There are people who are really gifted writers who can work in a whole bunch of adverbs and it doesn't look like it's because they don't know that run quickly can be condensed to sprinted. It's that they had a purpose for using an adverb in this case quickly. So just know that this is just one of those unfortunate things that it, it is a possibility that people are going to be such sticklers for the rules that they are going to discontinue reading something, even if they're enjoying it because they think that it's in violation. I think if you can ask yourself that question, though, am I am I enjoying this? Is this absorbing? Then then I think that can go a long way towards taking you back to that. Just, you know, the, the childlike love of reading that where we all stayed up way too late with the flashlight under the covers and we weren't worried about adverbs then the perfect summer vacation yep 
All right. So that said, uh, let's get into some basic ingredients for the opening of a novel. Okay. Um, one of, you may or may not need to introduce a character right off the bat. We talked about, uh, briefly mentioned both East of Eden and the Grapes of Wrath. And in neither of those novels is there a character that appears immediately it's this it's this kind of disembodied narrator who is describing landscapes um but that is a decision that has to get made what what is where who's holding the camera who is who is narrating this and from what perspective and what are they looking at? And you, you can't really get a first sentence unless, unless you have that information figured out. So um, we will get into each of these in more depth as we move through this series. But um, you, you've got to have your point of view figured out, for one. And the options there are first person, which is a, an I, Third person, which is a, a he, she, they. Um, and then you also have decisions to make in terms of um, how close you're going to be. So if you decide that it's going to be a third person narrator, um, then how close is the narration to that person's actual experience? Is, is this, in other words, is this a, a disembodied narrator who can move in and out of different people's heads so or, we would call that third person omniscient or the voice of god right versus a third person what i would call a third person close narration which is really it, the reader can't know it if the re, if the character doesn't know it you're really kind of a passenger in in somebody else's head and seeing things from their perspective. If they're in the kitchen, then, then they can't see what's going on in the living room. And so the reader can't know that either. That would be a third person close. In, in the case of Grapes of Wrath and East of Eden, like we talked about, that is a, a very omniscient, like you said, it's the voice of God. This is an omniscient narrator who is able to see things, even though there's no character there at all. There's no, there's no, narr there's no, um, the characters aren't there yet. He's talking about landscapes. He's talking about, you know, the entire mountain range, the entire valley, the processes that happen to the land and these things. So this is that, that's, that, that's a decision that has to be made before you can get that first sentence down. So let me ask you, what are some advantages of before we even dissect third person more fully what are some advantages of first person versus third person and third person versus first person i think first person is it's immediately inviting um you know we that's how we experience the world. People experience the world as our, you know, except maybe some very rare exceptions, but, uh, you know, we experience the world as first person narrators of ourselves. You know, we, we, our consciousness resides in our, our, our bodies for the most part. And we're, we, we see what we see, we hear what we hear. We, we think of ourselves in, in those terms. And I, I think it's, it's immediately inviting. It's very relatable. What do you think? What, is, what are your thoughts on that? I think it gives us the most intimate access to the protagonist because we are in some ways in a one-way conversation with the protagonist. We're hearing we, any, any thought, any anything it's running through us. We're, we're getting it straight from the horse's mouth. It gives a sense of immediacy that way. It, it feels close, which, you know, one of the things that I think is important is that if we think about first person and we're having someone say, I went to the store and I saw this mysterious person hanging out in aisle three and I was scared. 
we get all of that reporting, but we're not guaranteed that our narrator, the person talking to us, is a reliable source of information, which can be maddening and which can be fun and which allows for a certain amount of engagement with the text because we're asking ourselves, is this, is this real? Is there really a person there? Is this, is this a perceived thing? And that to me, that's part of the fun. A lot of the storytellers that I know who aren't writers, but the people who if I just want to be entertained and I'd say, tell me a story, they would tell me stories and the working assumption is that they would be true. But there would definitely be a bunch of times where internally, if not externally, I'd say like, did that, did that really happen like that? You know, we all have friends in our life who are great storytellers. And part of great storytelling might mean that the truth isn't always adhered to in the strictest of senses. When you get into a third person limited, I think you lose some of the malleability of truth because so we're being third person limited. We haven't used that term yet today. So what do you, well, I'm, I'm using, uh, I'm sorry, you use third person close. I'm using third person limited. It's just that, that we're getting one, we're getting a narrator who is talking about a protagonist, but they're using he, she, they as, as the word. So now we, again, don't necessarily have the ability to fully rely on the narrator telling us the truth about the protagonist, but it doesn't get into, I can't think of any of examples where the, the playfulness of it is the same. The same as what? Sorry, I'm... <laughs> to do a little editing here yeah I guess what I it's funny because I was actually the cartoon in my head while I was finishing up that sentence was just like just make it to the finish line just make it to the finish line <laughs> and I think I probably actually stopped a little bit short of the finish line and then looked at you to be like can you cut the tape or something so that I can make it through the line yeah I mean my my general my general summary of what I'm trying to say, and it's possible that I don't have the ability to articulate it as well as I have the ability to think it, is that riding along in first person and someone telling us a story and having the doubts about like, is that true exactly? But where we suspend a little bit of disbelief because we, we're being entertained, we want this. I would rather be sitting shotgun in a car listening to the protagonist tell me about something that they just did than I would be sitting in a car and having the narrator saying, oh, my God, you should meet my friend so-and-so. I'd rather meet so-and-so than hear about so-and-so from a, an outside source. Yeah, and that, I think that's the, the intimacy that you talked about. It feels very it's really inviting. It really brings you in. And this is somebody telling you their direct experience that you have access to them and their story in, in a way that doesn't quite happen with, with a different point of view, the different choice there. Um, the, the thing about the third person point of view though, is that it, can also lead you to a uh, multiple viewpoint characters, which there are, when you read the don'ts, there will be <laughs> there will be something that you'll find having too many viewpoint characters can definitely be confusing and it prevents, it, it presents some challenges when you have multiple characters in that readers are just gonna tend to like one of them more than another. You're, you're faced with the task of trying to make them each character's story equally engaging to, to you're asking the reader to invest in each of those characters' stories. And 
it's it's a challenge it's a challenge to be able to do that and to make them all equally compelling um the risk that you run with that is is one of them is not quite as interesting as the others or one of them is most compelling and then the other parts of the story can drag they can they can be boring the reader can get impatient to return to the one character that they're really invested in and they really care about isn't that a great trick when there is the character that we love so much in a multi point of view book and we get mad when a chapter ends featuring that character and another chapter starts with a plot line that maybe we had been reading about before or that we think we don't care about as much, but then getting sucked back into the second narrative that we didn't think that we wanted. Like that is an artist at work is when you can be like, Oh, but I just want to keep learning more about Ethel. And then you're like, but now I have to read about Gertrude. And then after a while, you're like, hey, well, actually, this Gertrude line's pretty good, too. Like, I'll get back to Ethel when I get back to Ethel. But like Gertrude is, is good. Like, that's that's the trick that you were talking about is how do you. How do you keep readers invested in multiple people and not angry that the other characters exist? I'm I'm reading the overstory right now. And it and and that's a master class in how to do this. And it, it, like these stories, I'm, I'm in the opening section, and it's it's each chapter is a completely new character. As you know, I think you were the first one to recommend that book to me. Um, each each of the opening chapters is a completely different story, a completely different character or set of characters, and um, and they're all gripping and riveting and very short. And he's asking you to just to quickly move from one to the next. Some of these chapters are five, six pages. You get completely invested in someone's story. And then he's like, all right, shut that door. I'm going to go open this next door, <laughs> see what's in there. And um, he's good at it. He's doing, he's doing well. Why would, why would you consider writing in third person multiple characters versus third person, just a singular character. What advantages does it offer you as an author? Well, in my personal case, the novel that I have in progress right now is a multiple third person narr narration. Um, I have, over the course of drafts, I have removed viewpoint characters. I had a few too many in there in the beginning. Um, and I've, I've pulled some out and tried to enhance others. But the reason that I'm doing it in this case is because I'm telling the story of a family. Um, it's kind of a, it's, it's a, a, a family of five. Uh, the parents were at one point viewpoint characters, but th those were the two viewpoints that I ended up taking out. There are two brothers and a sister, um, all kind of ranging in age from 18 up to late 20s and it's a collective story and it ranges back over a couple of generations and they each have a completely different take on they, they have very different windows into this story and the only way that I could tell this, the, the story is it's greater than any one character. And so for me, this decision was, was so that I could use their different viewpoints. I could use their different windows on their family history. I could use their different current personalities and their arcs, their transitions to have a, create kind of this, this different, these, these, different angles on looking at this central thing and to explore how that central story and this family history plays out in, in each of them. So there, there is kind of one of the characters is a little more central in terms of, in terms of the actions and the way that the other, the, the, the fictional world gets built around that, but their perspectives are all equally equally important and, and relevant. And the other reason that I did it was because it, California, and this kind of, this will go into a, a discussion of setting in, in the opening pages, but it, it, the 
cultural history and the geography of California both play uh, very significant roles in this story. And part of my original conception of this was that I wanted to have, so it begins here in the Bay Area and then one character goes north and the other character goes south and they have these kind of parallel journeys where they're they're experiencing different parts of the state in very different ways um but i wanted to to include as part of this narrative this this exploration of of like i said both the the geography and the history of the state and it's just too big and sprawling to have any one person, one character be able to do that. This is an excellent opportunity to get back to the question that we talked about last week. And we talked about what if, and we talked about identifying what is the story you want to tell. And when you're addressing it in the early spot here with point of view, it's important what Jason just said was, you can have a character who's telling part of the story. And yes, it could be its own whole story. It could, you could theoretically do a whole novel about any one character's thing. But if you're trying to tell a bigger story, if you're trying to tell a story that, I don't remember the exact language you just used, but it's bigger than any one individual. Then you need to start thinking about things like point of view. How do I, how many points of view, what are the essential details that I need to get across in the telling of the story that I, the author, want to tell? And, and how many and who are the vehicles that will help me tell it? And how do I choose how to tell their stories? on an individual basis to kind of weave together the larger story. Right. And that's, those are huge questions. Those are huge questions and they're pivotal to, to laying out the foundation for an entire novel. Um, per our, our stated goal in this particular episode, it's like the question remains, how do you begin to do that? Like where, where is the place that you start with that? And you, you reintroduce that what if question, you know, it's like the, what if this happened? You know, what if, what is, what is the, the, the inciting incident is the terminology for it. What is, what is the inciting incident? What is the, the, the thing that happens that puts this whole story in motion? And uh, we would be remiss here if we didn't mention conflict, if we didn't mention some kind of tension, if we didn't mention that, you don't start a story on a calm, boring afternoon. You start it when something comes in and interrupts that calm, boring afternoon. And so as you're asking those questions, who, if you've got multiple characters, if you've got this inciting incident, who has, where are you going to begin? Who has the window on that? Who, who is the character who is going to be able to, introduce that tension to the reader who, who's going to be affected by that you know what are what are the who's got something to lose what are what are the stakes what are what are the problems that are created by this inciting incident and who of your characters is, is has some serious consequences that they're looking at per this inciting incident so these are um it's a, a lot. It's, it's a lot to, it's a lot to figure out. It is. While we've just been talking about this, there are just all of these times where I feel like we could burrow deeper into a topic. And, and we already tried to be strategic about breaking this up into certain episodes to cover everything. But there is definitely a challenge that comes with you need to be able to talk about two different concepts at once to make a third concept make sense. And it's a lot of chicken or egg conversation about where do you start? But I feel comfortable with our what if 
from last week to get the idea and then the exact thing that you were just talking about. So what if this thing happens? Who can tell us about it? And what is the conflict that they experience out of that? Right. Yeah, exactly. We said that we were going to be bringing examples to this episode and maybe that we could read an opening sentence or paragraph or something like that to give to give examples of what works for us why why we like something as an opening and sort of dissecting it i would like to go first with the example that i have brought if that's okay please do all right the book that i have selected begins on chapter one and maybe you can help me keep track of like what point of view is used what some of the inciting what the inciting incident is what what's pulling our attention the begin the beginning goes like this chapter one first i saw him in a teacup It was the day before the storm hit, the storm we'd been watching on newscast Doppler as it approached from Alaska, devouring the coast like a carnivorous planet made of teeth and ice and smoke. The weather persons pointed to it, their expressions mixes of glee and trepidation, their predictions heavy with superlatives, italics and underlining. The storm had formed in the Arctic over Siberia, and it lurched eastward, devastating docks, leveling marinas, sending grapefruit-sized hailstones through windshields. Bearing sea waves had knocked some of the lesser islands in the Aleutian archipelago from their moorings and sent them tumbling southeast through sea foam, piling their ruins on the British Columbian coast along with uprooted trees, demolished fishing boats, polar bear carcasses. This same fury would soon be upon us, blotting out the sun, stealing whole chunks of the peninsula out from under us, but not yet. That day, the first day back in school after the winter break, it was still clear. An unbroken blue stretch of sky filled my classroom windows. The only indications of the coming maelstrom were the taut horizontal flags over the skyscrapers downtown. That was from A Paper Sun by Mr. Jason Buckholt. <laughs> so what I'm hearing, and then I'm going to kind of pick through your process on this. We got a first person. We have someone who's giving us firsthand information. We've got a, we've got a weather adjacent report. And in our pre-show, you mentioned like, oh, well, I started a paper sun with a weather thing. And I was like, yeah, you did. But the weather is more than the weather. The weather is more than two guys starting a podcast talking about the weather. The weather is its own force. It is essential in setting the tone It's not just a, it was a dark and stormy night, which is the cliche version that people always bring up. It's really painting the details and it's also showing its exceptionality by just the amount of damage it's done. And it's just this lurking monster that's coming eastward. And we've already know that it's done damage. And we know that we are sitting, we are sitting waiting for that damage to come to us. And there's, a lot of dread that that we can feel but our protagonist is also saying that kids are in school there's no real obvious way of knowing that this is coming it's not immediate right now but we know it's coming and that's setting up dramatic tension that's setting up dread and it's being set up in such a way that it doesn't look like this rain this storm is going to be an incidental part. We intuitively understand this is going to be something that isn't gone by page two or page three when the next day it was sunny and everything was great. We know that this is not a person, but we know that there's likely an adversarial effect coming in the form of nature. 
Well, thanks for dusting that off, first of all. Yeah. <laughs> you caught me by surprise there. Um, and I legit yeah. did. I did not tell him ahead of time that I was going to do that. Yeah. And I mean, the storm is an integral part of the story itself. It's not It's not just background. It's not just setting. Um, but it also gave me an opportunity. I remember that that, that line about the um the storm knocking the islands off of their moorings and sending them across the sea was that 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 appeared in a later draft and it was in response to some feedback just to, to to feedback i got about the the contract with the reader where so it's it's magical realism there's a lot of magic that happens there's a lot of things that happen in this book that are are paranormal let's say um and that's something that i came to feel was it wasn't immediately in, in the early drafts that wasn't really immediately cued and so i think it can be disorienting if if the reader doesn't have some clear indication of in what reality they're operating. So just, just with that, with the inclusion of that phrase, I'm hoping to signal to the reader, this isn't the real world. You know, this is, this is a place where you just kind of need to be prepared for things to happen that, that, you know, physics don't necessarily apply here in, in every way that you might be used to. Um, Interestingly enough, I think it's also a chance for us to talk about the reliability of the narrator and that push and pull between the reader and the narrator, because if you tell me that, that the islands of the archipelago have been pushed off their moorings and are floating across the sea, my first question is, like, what is this person's grasp on reality? And then I have to make a decision. Is it that I think this person is not well and that they are unable to process reality? Or do I have to jump in with them and say, okay, this world is a little bit different and it's unsettling in its difference, but I'm going to go along with the protagonist to try and make sense of this world. So it's this internal conflict that you might not even be aware of when you're having it because you're making split second decisions because am I following this? with a skeptical eye or am I following this as a matter of survival? But it's a, it's part of the dialogue that occurs in our heads. Right. And either way, whichever way you decide to answer that question for yourself in the, in those, in that opening passage, it, it leaves the door open. It's like, okay, you should continue to question what, what you're seeing. Like this is, this, this isn't, um, you know, there, there's some, it's an open question. The, um, you know, the very first line is first I saw him in a teacup and then that quickly kind of gets subsumed by the much lengthier description of the storm. But that was my attempt to start with, with the mystery, to really start with some conflict and tension. And you don't know who the him, it, all you really know is that you're not supposed to see people in teacups. And I just, I throw it out there and then I go and focus on some other things for a while and then come back to it, obviously. Um, but that was, that was my attempt to really start the story with the inciting incident and have that be, you know, the very first sentence. And then I made a decision to, you know, toss that out there in just a handful of words and then let it sit there for a little while while I filled in the, the, setting and the character and then uh, you know before coming coming back to that which is its own again dramatic tension you're setting this thing that begs for follow-up questions but then you're not answering those follow-up questions so the readers in big well what was that all about i have to keep reading to find out what is he talking about seeing somebody in a teacup masterful mr buckholtz <laughs> Well, you remember so. <laughs> you remember what the very first draft's opening line was? Or if it differed no. in any way? It did differ. I didn't I didn't get to that as I didn't get to that succinct 
line until kind of halfway through the process. I think it was definitely more of a, yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't there in the beginning. And then, yeah, that was, that, that was where I arrived. All right. Do you want right. to bless well, us you, with sir. whatever, whatever you've picked? Sure. Um, I, uh, I'm going to read the opening of Oryx and Crake by Margaret Atwood. So this is the first of her Mad Adam trilogy, which is a, a science fiction trilogy that she wrote. And um, it's, I, I, I loved it. I loved this trilogy. I thought it was so inspirational and just richly imagined. It, it, it's a dystopian, uh, I'm not gonna say anything more. I'm just gonna start reading. There are uh, three paragraphs that I'm gonna go through. And I talked, we talked about setting a little bit before. And what I love about this opening is that it, it really begins with setting. And as each of these paragraphs ticks by, she reveals a little more about the strangeness of, of this world. So the, the chapter is called, so it's the first, first book, uh, first part, and the chapter is simply labeled Mango. And so you have no idea what that means. And I think that already that's a mystery. It's like, why is this chapter called Mango? I, have, I don't know. Snowman wakes before dawn. He lies unmoving, listening to the tide coming in, wave after wave sloshing over the various barricades. Wish wash, wish wash, the rhythm of heartbeat. He would so like to believe he is still asleep. So that's paragraph one. We have a character named Snowman. That's a mystery. Why is this person called Snowman? If or this character, if it even indeed is a person. Um, what does it have to do with a mango? <laughs> What does it have to do with anything mango related? Uh, and then, you know, we have a fairly simple act. He's waking up, lying unmoving, listening to waves, but the waves are sloshing over various barricades. And that's just, that's the beginning of the hint of the mystery. It's like, what are these barricades for? What are, what is this a barricade against? A barricade is automatically something that, evokes tension and conflict this is this is a something that was built to to keep somebody safe to separate somebody from some danger and then of course we get that line he would so like to believe he is still asleep so if the barricades themselves didn't they might they without that line they could introduce some bygone tension but because snowman is is not He's not waking up into a world that's very comfortable. We automatically, we have present danger. We have, we have clear immediate danger. Next paragraph. On the Eastern horizon, there's a grayish haze lit now with a rosy deadly glow. Strange how that color still seems tender. The offshore towers stand out in dark silhouette against it, rising improbably out of the pink and pale blue of the lagoon. The shrieks of the birds that nest out there and the distant ocean grinding against the ersatz reefs of rusted car parts and jumbled bricks and assorted rubble sound almost like holiday traffic. In that, so that's the end of the second paragraph. We've got offshore towers, that's unusual. I love the verb, uh, or actually it's a, the, the shrieks of the birds not the songs of the birds, not the calls of the birds. This is shrieking. I think it sets a very, a very clear tone. Um, and then we start to hear about these, these barricades of rusted car parts, jumbled bricks and assorted rubble. And a little more of this world comes into focus. This is, this is not the world that we know and have grown familiar with. This is something very different. Third paragraph, out of habit, he looks at his watch, stainless steel case, burnished aluminum band, still shiny, although it no longer works. He wears it now as his only talisman. A blank face is what it shows him, zero hour. It causes a jolt of terror to run through him, this absence of official time. Nobody nowhere knows what time it is. Mm -hmm. 
So I think you hit that final sentence that that third paragraph, nobody nowhere knows what time it is. And that I think speaks worlds about what has happened, where they are. And then we have this, you know, we can all recognize this, a watch, the stainless steel case. These are artifacts of the world that is familiar, but something has happened. You know, we're, we're in the future that we're, we're in a, we're in a world that is, that is has remnants of the familiar, but has undergone some major transformation and it's not a happy one. There's tension. There are rusted car parts <laughs> that, that are, have been made into barricades from something out in the lagoon. Um, that just that last line, nobody know nowhere knows what time it is. That's so good on multiple levels because what it does for dramatic tension and scene setting is huge. It tells us a lot. It, it tells us that this is a book that I haven't read. It tells us that there has been a huge collapse and that survival is in play right now, that we're in some sort of survival mode. But just the pure poetics of nobody nowhere knows what time it is. That is such a gorgeous syntax and the sound of just all of it. It's just, it's so pleasant to hear. And it's so loaded with emotion when you fully sit down to recognize what it is it's saying. It's, it's this duality. It's, I'm going to caress your face with sandpaper. <laughs> it's 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 yeah that's great that was that was a really yeah. great opening what point of view has margaret atwood chosen at least so far through what we've read um i would call that well it's third person because we have snowman being introduced as snowman not i um and it is it is more of an omniscient than a limited third he's he's yeah i could make an argument for either one and i, I could say he, that it yeah, feels omniscient to me and at the same time it could be limited or close like there's nothing about it that disqualifies that like all of the visual cues are things that snowman could be processing things like nobody nowhere knows what time it is that is something that snowman could know or it could be the voice of god saying outside of here nobody knows what time it is and this is just the state of the world right now and that that is something bigger than what snowman knows so i could see it going in either direction yeah i agree and he's talking about you know the composition of these reefs the the, the barricades and these are things that he that he could know and could you know, as he wakes up and he hears these waves coming in, that that could all be part of his immediate consciousness. Because we have no idea how long been there. This could be very familiar at this point, even to to Snowman, even if it's not to us as a reader. Right. And like you said, it just brings up so many questions. It makes you want to you know, he's, you can, you can relate to him. I love the, the, the detail of the watch, how it's his only talisman that shows that there's, you know, just, just in that one little detail, it shows that there's a longing, that there's a, a, a nostalgia is not the right word because it's not powerful enough, but there is a, a longing in him for the way things used to be or for something else, for something that's remote and lost and for his only souvenir from it to be a broken watch is, you know, the, that that's obviously such a tiny symbol of whatever it is that he's longing for, of whatever it is that's been lost. And um, I just, it, for me, it just makes me really lean in and want to know more about him and what he's lost and, and what he's trying to get and what is what are the things that are make him unsafe why he's waking up next to a lagoon why the glow is deadly there's just it's it's makes you want to read and and it's like i said it's a trilogy she sustains you know this isn't just 
all wrapped us all up in one book. This is a, a major sprawling story that she is embarking on here. It's worth noting that if you are looking around the internet to get advice about how to start your novel, and again, going back to what I was saying earlier, some of the conventional wisdom that I have internalized and have to fight through the filter. One thing that you might hear or that you will hear is not to start with a weather report. And I read the beginning of Jason's novel that broadly speaking starts with a weather report. In fact, meteorologists are name dropped by profession right there. <laughs> but we talked about why it works and how it's not falling victim to what people mean when they say don't start with a, a weather report. It occurred to me when you were reading, one of the other pieces of advice that people will get is don't start with a character waking up. And the conventional wisdom is because what you're going to do is the alarm clock went off. I turned off the clock radio. Then I got out of bed and then I went and I brushed my teeth and then I went and I made coffee and then I read the newspaper and then my day started and no one wants to hear all that. So when people talk about don't start with someone waking up, it's because we don't want to hear the drudgery and the mundanity of what getting up in the morning is like, because we all know it. What we go through every single, every single day ourselves. But this, the beginning of Oryx and Crake, is a radical departure from that because now we're getting somebody waking up under conditions that are completely foreign to us and completely unknown to us. So the waking up does not fall victim to the thing that we are being warned against when we say don't start a book with a character waking up. And there's danger, you know, there's immediate tension and danger. And so he's waking up and that's immediately there, which you don't typically get when you're mashing your snooze bar and then making coffee and yeah, listening to the news or whatever. The tension between the first pot of coffee and the second pot of coffee is not <laughs> really all that compelling. Right. Probably going to suck for you later in the day, mm -hmm. but like right now it's not actually all that compelling. Let's do one more example. And this is an illustrative of another don't. So this is an opening. This is, I'll read the opening of the grapes of wrath. We've talked okay. about that a couple of times. Um, it is, you'll also read, don't start with a description of a setting. Um, you know, introduce your main character. This Steinbeck does, well, I'll, I'll read, but this is, this, this would violate any, a number of, of don'ts that you might see out there. To the red country and part of the gray country of Oklahoma, the last rains came gently and they did not cut the scarred earth. The plows crossed and recrossed the rivulet marks. The last rains lifted the corn quickly and scattered weed colonies and grass along the sides of the road so that the gray country and the dark red country began to disappear under a green cover. In the last part of May, the sky grew pale and the clouds that had hung in high puffs for so long in the spring were dissipated. The sun flared down on the growing corn day after day until a line of brown spread along the edge of each green bayonet. The clouds appeared and went away, and in a while they did not try anymore. The weeds grew darker green to protect themselves, and they did not spread anymore. The surface of the earth crusted, a thin hard crust, and as the sky became pale, so the earth became pale, pink in the red country and white in the gray country. so good <laughs> the bayonet like describing the, the the corn leaf as a bayonet is that's just brilliant it's and i so love good. how i love the 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 sense of tension that he creates by saying that what what didn't happen it's you know i, I think that that is such every now and then i'll and i can't think of another example right now but i sometimes I, like describing Describing something by describing what it isn't can be such a subtle way of creating tension, of, of creating 
that conflict, you know, it, he says that the, the clouds did not try to move. They, the, the weeds did not spread. And I think there are, I think there are, I think there are four things that didn't do what they, you know, these describing them by what they weren't doing by what wasn't happening. And it, it creates so much. It's like, here's it here again. This, this is not just a weather report. This is not just, you know, farmer. This John's is establishing, this is establishing the greater massive force of nature in an adversarial role or an indifferently hostile role. If something can be like, it's not that nature's choosing to go after the land and humans. Nature is just being nature. And this is the, the course that it's taking, which doesn't stop the fact that people need to learn to navigate and survive it. And if you're familiar with the Dust Bowl, if you're familiar with the Depression, if you're familiar with the Okies, if you're familiar with all of that stuff, then you come into this already preloaded with knowing like the terror of just seeing like, like clouds, just of dust and dirt, just caking homes and relentlessly just coming at you and at you. And it's just so loaded. And if you're not familiar with it and you have to stop and think about it, it almost takes on a magical realism quality. Well, unfortunately for today's youth, a lot of this actually may feel like, yeah, that's what happens is that we have significant droughts and stuff doesn't happen. But in my youth, this was a callback to a, a harsh time that was no longer. And so just even that, what you're bringing into it and the author's ability to create a choose your own adventure of emotional impact based on what your life experience is and the way that you're going to follow the, the narrative. It's just so masterful. Just reading, just when you're reading Steinbeck, I just sit there and I'm, I'm, I'm just, I marvel. I marvel at it. In the same way that I marveled at the uh, line about nobody nowhere knows what's time, what time it is. There are just these moments of genius where you can tell that you are in the hands of a master. It's, and that is one of the subconscious things that I, as someone who's reading a query letter or someone who's reading a, sub, a submission, you intuitively recognize it when you see it. And it immediately sets the tone for what you will allow an author to get away with. If I know that somebody is this in control and precise with their language and their ability to create evocative scene, I don't care if they use adverbs because I know that they're doing it intentionally because I know that they understand the most nuanced to the detail, to the syllable, the power of language and the power of words. And I'm willing to go along with it. Yeah. And he doesn't, let's see. So I'm scanning through this. There are no, you know, the characters don't even come into it until chapter two. You know, we don't hear dialogue. We don't aren't introduced to specific characters until, you know, he, he does this for a number of pages and you're like, fine. The first, <laughs> the all, first I'm, character I'm, is God manifested in weather. Right. And it's, and, and I think that I would also say you, you talked about that line, it, it, the um, nobody nowhere knew what time it was and, and that, that passage and it's so visceral and it hits you. And I think with this in particular, that dryness, that lack of like, it makes me thirsty. Just, you know, I feel the thirst of that land. I feel the thirst of that corn, the, the browning corn. It's, it's, and that's something that, we can relate to you know it's just it's it's so evocative and it just the lack of water something that we can all relate to it's 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 there is an immediate tension there yeah absolutely that is it's so subtle and nuanced but it, it's visceral it's there 
All right. Well, I think this is a good stopping point for today. And then we'll be back next week with another lesson. Do you have anything else to add, Mr. Jason Buckholz, author of A Paper Sun? I could do this all day, but <laughs> I know I'm a nerd that way. I could too. All righty. For story. For community. Collaborate. Collaborate.